Well, kia ora, and uh, welcome to a special edition of um, the Kaka. It's a weekly uh, lap around the main climate news with our climate correspondent, Catherine Dyer. Catherine, lovely to see you. Good morning. So this week um, has been a big one for all sorts of reports that have come out, um, particularly ahead of the COP uh, conference in Dubai. But you've spotted some interesting uh, developments in the global rush for credits, carbon credits, uh, which you can actually, in theory, earn by stopping deforestation. And the reason this is interesting, I think, is uh, New Zealand uh, is currently behind its targets to meet its uh, Paris uh, Agreement commitments. And at the moment, both parties actually are assuming that we'll be able to uh, make up the difference, make up the gap by buying carbon credits. Now, uh, this is the idea that you can buy them overseas and we don't know the price. Uh, We don't know if we can actually buy them. Uh, We don't know if we can trust them. Uh, We have a track record on this uh, because we bought a bunch of hot air credits in the mid-early 2000s under the previous key government which uh, we could get from all sorts of interesting places, Russia in particular, Ukraine actually, where um, credits were claimed for the closure of big dirty factories that were built in the communist era. And uh, it seemed like a a bit of a free kick and it it was too good to be true. We've now had to cancel those credits. And um, the the worry is that uh, come the end of the Paris Accord, uh, a whole bunch of new interesting credits come onto the market, some of which are from forests in Africa. Catherine, could you tell us about what's going on in Africa right now? Yeah, absolutely. And I I actually think it would be a good idea to start the conversation by saying what was supposed to happen under Article 6, um, because what's happening in Africa at the moment was not really supposed to happen. So what was supposed to happen, there's a couple of different parts to Article 6. Um, The the two important sections are 6.2 and 6.4. And under 6.2, what was supposed to happen is that governments like New Zealand would, who needed carbon credits, and we always planned to um, meet our 2030 targets with some offsets. And the idea is that we would go and negotiate with another country for for what are called international transfers of mitigation outcomes. And we would, we would negotiate with a, a country that was going to meet their targets and had some spare ones. And you would, and the idea is you would negotiate for a project that would help their um, carbon transition. So this would primarily be things in energy sectors and in transport sectors and stuff like that, like proper projects and the idea was that wasn't really going to be about trees, that was going to be about proper mitigation projects and so if New Zealand was going to do that we would need to start negotiating pretty soon because you need to get the outcomes before 2030 Um, and those projects are long term so you would need to start, and some countries have started negotiating for those sorts of things so that was what was supposed to happen and then there's another section 6.4 and this is really about the creation of a global carbon market of more kind of liquid carbon credits that you could just go and buy and under that section there are um, 
you are allowed to include things like nature-based solutions. And these in the past have never been in compliance markets. They've been some of it in REDD-type projects, which is the forestation deforestation ones, have been in voluntary markets, but they haven't been in compliance markets. And one of the issues has always been it's difficult to monitor them and to, you know, to make sure that those um, – those reductions in emissions are actually verifiable. And so what the experts are saying now, we've got a whole lot of new technology that helps us to do that. We can use sat- satellite imagery. We can, you know, There's all sorts of new things that we can do that are much better in terms of monitoring. And so they have been allowed into, are going to be allowed into this market. And what we're finding now is ahead of even that market getting off the ground we're finding this massive land grab going on um, for forestry in Africa. Um, so, that's- so, so just to sort of um, bring some terminology, I hate to bring in a good acronym, but there is one that I've learned this week, which I think is worth knowing about. R-E-D-D. What is this R-E-D-D thing? So R-E-D-D is a, is a UN framework for... Um, and it's for reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. And it normally has a plus under it, and that's a whole lot of other activities that can be included as well that are things like conservation of forest carbon stocks, sustainable management of forests, um, and enhancement of forest carbon stocks. So it's a whole set of activities around forestry that um, can sit under this framework. And and that framework has... Um, had a lot of troubles over the years, let's put it that way. It's been responsible for, there's been a lot of land grabs, there's been a lot of um, controversy over whether or not those carbon credits are really um, real or not. And in fact, one of the largest um, outfits in the voluntary carbon market that is running REDD Plus projects, VERA, V-E-R-R-A, um, they have come under a lot of scrutiny and there was a, a big project by a bunch of um, media outlets that looked at um, their um, their projects and said something like 90% of these carbon credits aren't actually real. Um, and so they've actually ceased a lot of their projects or put them on hold while they, while they re-look at how that monitoring and verification is done. But there's also been a lot of stories about Indigenous peoples being evicted from forest areas and local communities being prevented from using um, forest areas for their um, livelihood activities. You know, there's been um, armed guards guarding forest areas and and evicting. So there's been a lot of um, kind of bad stuff that's happened under that framework. Um, And that framework now comes into this new compliance market and there are just billions more dollars at stake. And so the rules of how you run it become really important, you know, and it's kind of like a rules arms race. I call it a regulatory arms race because the dollars, countries like New Zealand are looking for the cheapest claim they can stand up at the UN. And so they're looking around for, we're looking around for where can we get the cheapest um, carbon credits that are considered legitimate. Um, but, you know, at the same time, that's going to find all the holes in the regulatory mm-hmm. framework where cheap credits can drop through and we're going to be under there waiting for the, those chips to fall into our cup so that we can go and claim them. Um, and so the regulators have to co- constantly try to figure out how to stop those holes from forming. So it becomes a regulatory arms race between mm-hmm. the billions of dollars that are at stake here. Uh, and there are states, state power involved. There's fossil fuel-backed 
money involved where this shake comes in in Africa. Um, do you want me to explain a bit about yes. what's happening so, there? So we know that uh, we're going to have this COP in Dubai um, run by uh, the uh, head of the, lo- the local um, uh, oil and gas company. And it turns out that um, the Dubai royal family uh, are involved in a company called Blue Carbon. Could you talk about that? Yeah, so there's a, a particular sheikh involved in uh, who has set up this company, Blue Carbon, in the last year. And that company, Blue Carbon, has been going around signing uh, uh, memorandums of understanding or signing deals with a whole lot of African countries to take control of their forestry operations in order to enter into the carbon credit market. Um, so he's done deals with, um, what is it, Zimbabwe, Zambia, uh, Kenya, um, Tanzania, Liberia, like a whole set of countries. And in Zimbabwe, for instance, that deal it includes something like one-fifth of, of the country's entire land mass, and it's worth something like $1.5 billion um, in funding for forest protection and rehabilitation. Um, and so ever since Article 6 was signed, a lot of um, a lot of forest countries have looked at it and said, this is how we're going to get a lot of funding for the transition that we need to undergo. Um, and in fact, the president of Kenya said this was going to be their next significant export from Kenya was going to be carbon credits. <laughs> so there's a there's a ton of money involved and some of it is quite important for, you know, you need financing to go to these countries for to fund their transitions. Um, but in the path of that often is local communities and indigenous groups who have lived sustainably and defended and protected those forests for hundreds if not thousands of years um, and you know you, you start to get a bit of conflict over who's going to get the money from this um, and so in Kenya for, for instance a new law was written that um, indigenous peoples and local communities would get something like 40% of the revenues from any of this that happened um, but that just kind of creates a huge incentive for state power to disappear these people before the money ever has to get shared out, right? And so while there's a whole lot of rules around what you have to do and what kind of negotiations you have to go through with those local people, there's also a lot of incentive to find a way around that and redirect the money into certain coffers. Um, So so this is is getting into the very dirty detail around the types of credits that New Zealand – might have to buy to try to uh, reduce its liability. Uh, I'm personally of the view that um, this liability should be put onto the Treasury's books as a contingent liability, that the government must then look to try and reduce by actually reducing emissions as opposed to um, trying to find some cheap and nasty way to make the problem go away by buying credits. And the more we see of these um, REDD plus credits, the, uh, the less savoury it, appear, it appears. And by the way, I'll also put into the um, email that we're going to send out today a link to a very good substack called uh, REDD Monitor, which um, does a lot of um, investigative reporting into yep. the area of these REDD um, credits. And uh, this area is going to be a hot topic at COP, isn't it? Yeah, it is going to be a hot topic at COP, and REDD Monitor is particularly concerned that this um, organisation, Blue Carbon, and its and its head are 
going to be there trying to influence the process because some some of the final details that have been negotiated, they're, they're going to set up a a UN authority that will, will decide whether your carbon credits from this stuff get approved or not or accepted into the, into the system. So it's going to be a bit like the authority that was set up to manage the clean development mechanism under the Kyoto Protocol. So it's sort of an updated version of that. Um, so it's not clear, clear yet whether or to what degree these carbon credits resulting from these deals, whether they will be accepted by the authority. Um, and, and some of the finer details of the rules around that are what still needs to be negotiated or finalised. Um, and, and, so th- and the slightly scary thing is here is that COP this year is going to be um, extra dominated or certainly um, uh, uh, will be the subject of lots of lobbying by big um, fossil fuel companies who are very connected into this. And the idea of buying credits um, or essentially uh, uh, using another tool to allow you to keep doing what you're doing uh, is quite attractive. And, of course, if you want to screw the scrum so that it's even cheaper and easier for you to essentially um, uh, wash away your your uh, emissions, then um, that, that could be a dangerous thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, this the money that's been uh, uh, invested through blue carbon, that is fossil fuel money. That's wealth that's come from mm. fossil fuels that has now been used to purchase, you know, management of these forestry offsets, which would then be sold back to governments like UAE mm. and others um, to offset their fossil fuel activity. So, yeah, and, and, and I think one of the issues as well is these negotiations have always, um, there's always been potential billions of dollars involved in the outcomes of these negotia- negotiations. But this year, there are actual billions of dollars involved because they've already gone out and written up these deals. Um, so it just kind of amps up the, you know, the pressure and the, the stakes are so high um, around this. And they're high both for the host countries that, actually need this money in order to fund um, their resilience and adaptation strategies as well as the the mitigation strategies um, but the but the odds are the stakes are also high for those countries who need a lot of offsets mm. um, and you know in that mix New Zealand is a relatively small player but as a proportion of our um, targets for um, 2030 with some of the highest proportion in the world mm. for the amount of offsets that we need to meet our targets. So it is quite important to us how this comes out. And one of the reasons Treasury hasn't wanted to put these numbers on its books is because it really depends on how much they end up having to pay per unit. And the cheapest units that they could buy would be the ones that come from emerging countries mm. um, where they're it's plenty of volume and the prices are lower and that would be these kinds of, you know, and these, these are the liquid ones that you buy at the last minute to, to stock up your, to meet your targets. And um, they're, ne- they're never the good ones. Uh, the cheap, the cheaper yeah. you get, I mean, you sort of get what you pay for, don't you? And one of the risks here is that we spend billions, literally up to 24 billion is the treasury estimate. 24 billion is a lot of money. That's a couple of years of health budgets. That's um, one year of New Zealand superannuation payments. And it's a hu- huge amount. And, and National have already said, oh, we're not planning to spend that kind of money on offsets. So, the you know, if you were going to do these upfront deals with other countries based on these, um, you know, ITMOs, um, international transfers of mit- mitigation outcomes, 
under 6.2 part of the article, you would be spending in the region of that 24 billion. But, mm. you know, my guess is what they'll do is they'll do a couple of these projects and they'll show um, good faith by trying to negotiate um, a bit, but they'll leave quite a bit of um, unaccounted for offsets required that we need to buy at the last minute on the open market, hoping mm. that they will be cheaper. Mm. And, That's you know, my the, prediction. <laughs> yeah, the clock is ticking on this. Yeah, twenty twenty four almost. That's and, right. And we're way behind. Yeah. Just to fi- just to finish off for this week, um, Catherine, we've had a couple of uh, big reports that have come through uh, this week on on the climate itself, um, not not just globally, but but here, uh, the UN report to start with. Um, what what did that say this week? Um, I think the one that we're looking at is the, um, it's called the State of Climate Action 2023. It's not actually a UN report. It was done by, it was done to feed into the global stock take, but it was done uh, um, on behalf of, uh, it was done by a bunch of different, mostly NGOs. So Climate Action Tracker is one, um, Climate Analytics, um, Climate Works Foundation in San Francisco. So it was a bunch of organisations that got together to do this. And they were looking at measuring um, across different sectors globally, globally what kind of progress were we making versus what we would need to do to be within 1.5 degrees of warming by 2030 to meet those targets. Um, and so they looked at 42 indicators um, and found that of those 42, a single indicator was on track to mm. meet those targets. Every other indicator was either off track, well off track, or going in the complete, completely wrong direction. <laughs> and the one indicator that was on track was um, the proportion of EVs that were being sold in the passenger vehicle market. So <laughs> if the if the only thing we do is buy electric vehicles um, – the, the climate's not going to do too well, but we'll all be travelling down that road <laughs> in mm. EVs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was that uh, one report from the um, the UN which essentially uh, analysed uh, what the national climate plans uh, put forward uh, w- were likely to lead to and, and how far away it was from what was needed to get to one and a half degrees. And that, right. show, that showed uh, that... Um, currently, um, the the emissions agreed to and the paths that most countries are on would uh, lead us to um, uh, emissions increases of 10.6% compared to 2010 levels, um, between 88 and 10.6%, whereas what we actually need to do by 20. 30 to have a good chance of sticking at or below the one and a half degrees is to reduce emissions by 43% compared to 2019 levels. So we are way behind the, uh, the, 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 the track we need to get to one and a half degrees. Yeah. I think that was the one that was part of the UN global stock take, Ah, right? Yeah. 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 So yeah, off track, no matter which way you slice it, To look at it, we're we're off track um, for those. But I, you know, I, I think it's most scientists have pretty much come to the conclusion that one point five is kind of receding into the rear vision mirror. Um, but at the same time, there's a strong argument for continuing to focus on it because that is still what we need to. Even if we pass mm. it, we need to somehow get back to it. Yeah. Um, and that's and, where we start to talk about negative emissions technologies. Yes. Which, uh, by the way, there was a report out of Western Australia this week that um, the the biggest um, 
carbon capture project in Western Australia that was uh, it was launched is actually only capturing a third of what it said it would. Um, there will be yet to see at scale, uh, at, a, at a reasonable cost, the, the, the actual uh, carbon capture from either the atmosphere or from um, uh, other other projects. So, yeah, one of the things. To do, they're finding is that there's quite a lot of energy involved in doing the capturing and storage in the first place. And so if you are trying to do that whilst you're using fossil fuels for energy or whatever, then, you know, a third to a half of the energy that you would expect normally to get out of that process is is then going into carbon capture and storage. And so the energy that you get out the other end is very little. And that that becomes really important when you start to look over the long term at what your energy return on energy investment is. Um, There's a particular figure that says if if you – so normally they express it in a a ratio form. So you might say we get five units of energy back for every unit of energy invested – and, and getting the energy in the first place. Mm. Um, and there's a figure that some people have said, you know, from uh, historic studies indicates that if you go much below five to one, five units of energy in return for every energy invested to get it, that that kind of leads to a, a collapse, a societal collapse. You can't go much below five to one and still keep the whole kind of industrial society going. Um, so that eroy, and there's a lot of debate about how it gets measured and what's included and excluded and all that sort of thing. So it does become quite technical and academic any discussion about eroy. But it is a critical number that you need to stay below. You can't invest so much energy in getting energy that there's nothing left over for the rest of society to actually do other productive activities. Yeah, which leads us all back to the, the basic um, truth that if we're going to um, – uh, try to reduce our emissions, we actually have to reduce our use of energy full yeah, stop we, as opposed to, to trying, find, trying to find some clever way to keep going and um, uh, either somehow sinking the carbon into the into the earth or um, somehow offsetting it by uh, doing something else. Just finally, um, we've, we've got a report out from the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment uh, this week on uh, what's on the seabeds in our economic exclusion zone. It turns out it's very interesting. Yeah, this could turn out to be a really big deal, actually, I think, a a big talking point. Um, They did a study uh, that was commissioned. It was done by NIWA and commissioned by the PCE, and they were looking at what kind of carbon is stored in sediments under the the sea. And they, what they measured within New Zealand's territorial waters added up to something – like what was believed to be 1% of the total global Mm -hmm. amount of carbon stored in sediment. Um, And they also said, you know, there are particular areas that are really rich in this stuff and other areas that are not so rich, and that a lot of human activities can disturb the seafloor and release that carbon from from where it's sitting. Um, And those are things like mining, seabed mining, dredging, um, the trawling fishing trawling bottom trawling yeah bottom trawling anchoring all these sort of activities can disturb that um, sediment and, and release the carbon that's been stored oh, there yeah. and so that that includes a lot of activities and one of the there was a key place where they said this was happening i think it was around i don't know if it was off the coast of Taranaki there was a complete um um a, a potentially rich 
sediment bed, um, and that's exactly where we want to do a lot of um, seabed mm-hmm. mining and other activities. So, yeah, there's a there's a lot to talk about, and I think a lot will be talked about coming out of that report and going forward. Because it's it's sort of world first type stuff, and it starts to identify the um, carbon captured on the seabed and the risks with you know mining, trawling. Uh, sadly, I suppose, um, building offshore wind farms. Yeah, I mean, what they said is, you know, where you know that there are particularly rich patches, you can you can make those areas of significance and try to avoid doing those activities just in certain areas. So, so there are ways that you can manage it going forward. Um, but then maybe also that becomes another avoided carbon emissions release that you can create you know, credits for. <laughs> Take it back into the market. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was going to mine it, but I've decided not to. Please give me $10 million. Yes, we can yeah. be paid to protect it. Yeah, love it. Hey, great to chat, Catherine. Thank you very much. And um, we we'll look forward to this as a weekly um, event, our a weekly uh, wrap-up of uh, climate news in Aotearoa and beyond. Ka kite anō. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. See you later, everybody. Bye-bye.